Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today we're talking to Angie Kim, the author of Miracle Creek, which is out now from Sarah Crichton Books. We were so excited to read this book, and Angie herself is a wonderful person. Um, she, a little bit about her before we talk about the book. Um, she, as a preteen, she moved from Seoul, South Korea to Baltimore. And then she went on to attend Stanford University, Harvard Law School. Um, she edited the Harvard Law Review and then was a, a trial lawyer. And now she is a writer and her work has been published in Vogue, the New York Times, Slate, Southern Review, and so many other places. And now she has written her first novel, which is a courtroom drama. Yes. And I just really was on the edge of my seat for this entire book. And I really love literary thrillers or literary mysteries. And this definitely hit that sweet spot for me. This definitely was a page turner and I had no idea what was going on. And it definitely was, even though this is like more of a mystery thriller, it definitely wet my mystery appetite for sure. So without going too much more into the book, uh, here is our conversation with Angie Kim. Well, welcome to the podcast, Angie. We are so excited to have you on. I thank you so much. I'm so excited to be on. So I found out about your book because Liberty Hardy was posting about the title change on the cover. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then um, as I read her review, I was like, oh, I really need to read this book. And then I got my hands on it. And um yeah, it was just, we just really enjoyed reading it for a lot of reasons, which we'll get into here for a minute. But. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. And yeah, I know exactly what post you're talking about. I love that post because I was sort of despondent about the title change because of the logistics and, you know, uh, losing Goodreads reviews that had already gone up and things like that. Um, that got, you know, swept up in the title change. So I was upset, but then I saw her post and I was like, you know what, maybe this is not such a bad thing after all. Cause I love Liberty Hardy <laughs> and she, that made her, and that made her notice my book. So yeah, yes. that was great. Yeah. Well, before we get a little ahead of ourselves, um, for our listeners who haven't read Miracle Creek yet, um, would you describe it for them? Sure. It is a literary courtroom drama about a Korean immigrant family and a young single mother who's on trial for murdering her eight-year-old son who is on the autism spectrum. So Miracle Creek is a small Virginia town where this immigrant family, the Yu family, runs something called the Miracle Submarine, which is a real thing. It's a pressurized chamber for hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which is an experimental treatment for things like autism and cerebral palsy and infertility. And one day with six people sealed inside, someone sets a fire by the oxygen tank, which explodes and kills two people. So in one sense, Miracle Creek is a legal thriller. The readers become the jurors as this murderer trial uncovers secrets from that night to find out who set the fire, how, and why. Um, but much more than the mystery, I hope that 
Uh, we can explore the lives of these characters, the immigrant family and the patients and their mothers who are in the Miracle Submarine that night. And we see sort of the sacrifices and the desperation even that come with special needs parenting and immigrant life, especially in rural America where it's so isolated. So you've told the story from multiple perspectives. And so what made you decide to do that multi-perspective narrative versus like just through the eyes of one person? Yeah. So I guess it was a couple of different things. Um, One is I did want to explore the lives of this group that came together in this chamber that's sealed in. And to me, the chamber feels like a crucible and it's like a great mix where people are trapped and especially in an emergency situation, they can't get out. And we sort of see what emotions and dynamics from a relationship perspective perspective can sort of be fostered um, in that atmosphere. And so given that we have this group setting, I wanted to look at the group. Um, And by looking at each individual piece, like one by one, I really hoped that we could sort of get into the nooks and crannies. And then And then secondly, from a mystery perspective, I just think it's really interesting when you have the kind of feel where it's one person experiences a a tragic incident so much differently than another person. And the perspectives can be so different. And the way that they describe and experience the same incident can be so different. So to me, that was really interesting to explore sort of the who done it and how done it and why done it elements to be able to give the readers bit by bit from different people's perspectives and throw in the clues. And um, some of my favorite books that are um, centered around, you know, tragic events and the aftermath are things like Russell Banks' The Sweet Hereafter, which is, you know, also framed in this way where we have, you know, I think in that book, it's four different perspectives. And then, you know, things like uh, Mystic River, which is also looking at lots of different characters in sort of a close third POV. And we get to learn each of the characters and their roles in the tragedies that occur. And that's one of the things I found so rooting about this book is that all of the different characters are telling their own different stories. And the book is structured as, you know, this courtroom drama. So you have like day one, day two, and different things like that. And of course, there are flashbacks. What I found really interesting was uh, that you uh, were a practicing trial lawyer and that that was a lot of what informed uh, those, especially those scenes that you wrote. And I heard in the interview that you just like flew through those scenes and some of them mm. were actually cut <laughs> for length. Yeah. Yeah. I edited those um, courtroom scenes so much because I had so much fun writing them. And usually I'm a really slow writer and it takes me so long to sort of eke out one sentence at a time and sort of, you know, try to make each sentence have the rhythm that I want and all that kind of stuff. But when it came to the courtroom scenes, I think I put on my lawyer hat and took off my writer hat. And it enabled me to sort of not have all these 
obsessions that I have about like where the comma should go and how the rhythm should flow and things like that, that I usually do with my prose. And so I was able to just write it and, you know, write it like a lawyer would, uh, without worrying about it, like word choices and synonyms and, you know, things like that. So it was really fun to write. And, um, and I was a lawyer for a while and I was a trial lawyer and by far my favorite thing about being a lawyer was being in the courtroom, especially cross-examining hostile witnesses and things like that. I didn't really like much else about being a lawyer, which is why, <laughs> which is why I left the law, um, because unfortunately you're only in the courtroom so much and not that much at all. So this was just a really fun way for me to sort of feel a little bit like of a connection back to my former career as a trial lawyer, um, but not in a way that, you know, produced any anxiety and just was really fun. So I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely tell her some of my favorite scenes. I can almost see it like unfolding in like Law and Order or something, you know, like going right, through. Right, right. Oh, yeah. I loved it. I was always on the edge yeah. of my seat. Yeah, I love <laughs> Law and Order too. So that was great. <laughs> great. I love that comparison. Well, and I felt like, too, as I was reading, like, the mental picture in my head, I felt like I was one of those cameras on the football field, you know, that, like, moves around and, like, lets you get to see every different perspective of everyone. Because I felt like, I don't know, it was so immersive. And it was a page turner for sure. Oh, but, that's great. I love I love hearing that. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. So we've, you've mentioned a little bit about how part of – so. We have a trial and we have this mom who is on trial because her her son died like in an HBOT accident. Um, I'm air quotes here, you know, <laughs> she's on trial. Um, so but HBOT was something that I had never even encountered before reading this book. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you know about it and why you decided to include it in this in your story? Sure. HBOT or hyperbaric oxygen therapy, it's, it is a real thing. So a lot of hospitals are actually um, getting it now. And in fact, I don't know if you guys watch Grey's Anatomy. In the first episode of this season of Grey's Anatomy, um, they get a, an HBOT chamber in the basement of that hospital, which is supposed to be like all state of the art. So I think it's sort of like making its way into the mainstream more, but it's used in real hospitals for FDA approved treatments like carbon monoxide poisoning and diving accidents, the bends and um, gangrene and things like that. And where it's a an experimental treatment that hasn't yet been approved for, um, by the FDA for um, treatments is things um, that I sort of highlight in the book, which are things ranging from infertility and Lyme disease to autism and cerebral palsy. And I came to know about it, oh, a dozen years ago when one of my kids um, who was born deaf in one ear and then also had ulcerative colitis 
and um, celiac disease. So the celiac disease and the hearing loss, you know, you manage, um, you do therapies, you do the gluten-free diet and things like that. But the ulcerative colitis was just really tricky. And, you know, he was like four and he had severe inflammation and was crying and not gaining weight and, you know, throwing up. So all that kind of stuff is really, you know, difficult to deal with. And when there's no conventional treatment that seems to be working, you sort of become desperate to try whatever you can. And um, a member of mine had told me that she heard about this hyperbaric oxygen treatment that was coming, and she found some studies that um, had to do with its effects for ulcerative colitis, which she emailed to me. In fact, I actually still have that email. It's so um, interesting. So I talked about it with my son's doctors and, you know, and with it being an experimental treatment, nobody was really recommending it per se, but they weren't dissuading me from it either because they sort of knew, you know, this is the kind of thing that, you know, when you're desperate and you're a mother who doesn't want to see her child in pain, you sort of want to try whatever you can. So we did uh, 40 dives, and a dive is an hour-long treatment over the course of a summer. And the chamber that we used was a group chamber where you go in with three other patients and a caregiver um, per patient. And so you're sealed in there. And it looks like a submarine. The first time my son saw it, he was like, oh, look, it's a submarine. Because we had just watched the Beatles' Yellow Submarine that summer for family movie night. And it looks like that. It looks like a little mini submarine with four portholes and a sealed hatch. And it's all, you know, steel, uh, strong steel. Um, ours was actually painted blue, so we called it the blue submarine that summer. And you go in and the kids put on or the patients put on the uh, oxygen hoods and are breathing in 100% oxygen in this pressurized chamber. And there's really nothing to do inside for the adults because the kids, they set up this DVD system for the kids to watch through the portals. But for the adults, you know, there's only so much Sesame Street and Barney videos that you can watch. And um, we weren't allowed to bring in any books or writing things or, and certainly no electronics, nothing that could uh, potentially be flammable in any way. Um, so we went in and we just talked to each other about our lives and about our kids and about the medical issues that various people had. And it was just this very intimate confessional feel. And it was really intense. And so years later, when I became a writer and I started thinking about a potential setting for a novel, the chamber just came to me immediately. And I knew that I wanted to write about it. And I knew that I wanted to write about some tragedy that happens inside while they're inside and they can't get out and sort of what circumstances must have led to that kind of a situation and what is the aftermath of that kind of a situation. That's one of the things that I found so riveting was these women in this 
you know, this chamber, mm-hmm. like just talking to each other. Um, I grew yeah. up, I have, I have inflammatory bowel disease and all uh, different other things going on. So I grew up in and out of doctor's offices and, you know, it wasn't until as an adult, I, I realized how difficult that was for my mom, you know, yeah. talking to other moms about trying to figure out what's going on and just a wide range of different things. And that is one of the things I loved about your novel was that all of these moms are caregivers, but they all have different kinds of children, different kinds of approaches. And when you have literature that rarely includes this type of caregiver in it, mm-hmm. I just was so impressed with the range um of diversity, not just amongst the kids, but also among the moms and the caregivers. Was that something that you were very conscious of going into telling the story? You know, I'm not sure that I knew that that was going to be a theme per se or anything like that, but I knew that I did want to have a variety of different characters of the mothers because the way that people respond to different um, disabilities and and chronic medical illnesses, I think definitely varies. And I've seen that among, you know, my own group of friends um, and the HBOT friends and the HBOT moms that, um, that have become close friends. And definitely one of the things that I wanted to explore was this idea that, you know, when your child is in pain and you can't really do anything about it, you feel like the unluckiest person in the world. You feel, you you know, you just, you sort of want to sort of cry out that life is being unfair because your child is in pain and your child is sick and that's just the worst thing you can think of. But then you end up in a situation like this where there is a group of people who are sick with a variety of different illnesses and um, the degrees of disability are so varied. And I think when that happens, it really makes you think very hard about your thoughts about, you know, the sort of fairness and unfairness that I was just talking about. So for me, when I went into this chamber, having thought, okay, here's my little guy who was born deaf in one ear, and then he has this unrelated, you know, celiac disease and ulcerative colitis. And, you know, I just feel so badly for him. I feel so badly for me for having to spend all my time you know, shopping and cooking, which I hate and I'm really bad at and all that kind of stuff. And then you go into this atmosphere and you spend a lot of time with the mom of someone who's in a wheelchair, who can't talk, who has a feeding tube. And that starts making you think and feeling ashamed and guilty for all the things that you thought before, because then in that situation, you realize how lucky you are, you know, um, to have a child who can run and sing and hug me and call me mama and tell me about his day at preschool and all that kind of stuff. So you start appreciating all the little things that you sort of took for granted. And I think that was one of the most intimate emotional experiences that I've ever had is talking about that, those kinds of feelings with these moms in that sealed chamber and having that sort of what I call the hierarchy of disabilities play a role in how you think about 
your relative luck and happiness in life, the relativity of happiness. And so to me, that's a really huge area personally that I've thought a lot about. So I guess it's natural that I included that in my novel. Yeah. And I could, I could definitely tell that you understood that. And I think when a lot of times I read novels, I can tell like they just had done some research on, on a topic. They didn't emotionally understand the topic that they were approaching. And when I was reading your book, especially after a certain scene, which I won't talk about because that is a spoiler, but there, there are two women talking in the HBOT and I had to put the book down and it was like, okay, I just need, I just need a moment because I felt like you had seen my mom. I felt like you had talked to her in some way. And, you know, as an adult realizing that this was your mom's life it was just very emotionally moving for me. And in that context of this story of this mom who is being accused of, you know, basically killing her own child, that was just a very emotional moment. And I think that you just pull that out in such a in such an effective way that it communicates. And I really appreciate the fact this is also in an, a sense, a known voices book where you have been a mom and a caregiver and that definitely shows. And I just, I just really appreciated that. And I'm like, mom, you need to go read this book. Just go read it. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. No. And I love that because, um, I've been reading so many reviews from, um, the moms from, you know, readers who are um, moms who are caregivers in this or similar situation and talking about how much they appreciate seeing characters, you know, have thoughts that are similar to what they've had and things like that. But I think this may be the first time that I've heard from somebody who was the child, you know, in that situation and um, can really appreciate what their their own parents went through. So I really appreciate this. This is really awesome. And it's just making me want to cry. It's, <laughs> it's, it's great. Thank you. And we'll be back with more of our interview with Angie Kim after a word from our sponsor. This episode of Reading Women is sponsored by Care Of. Care Of is a subscription service that makes it easy to get vitamins, protein powders, and more personalized just for you and delivered straight to your door. Give yourself support this season with a boost, whether you're looking for energy, better sleep to maintain stress, or something else to help you feel your healthiest. I don't know about you guys, but I am addicted to those little quizzes online that tells you what your personality type is or <laughs> who your Harry Potter character is. And the cool thing about Care Of is that they too have an online quiz that asks you about your diet, your health goals, your lifestyle choices, and it only takes about five minutes to get your own personalized, scientifically backed recommendations for vitamins, protein powders, and more. Care-of believes that taking care of your health should be easy and convenient. You know, Care-of delivers your daily vitamin and supplement packs along with protein and other things all customized to your recommendations so you're only taking what you really need. And they come in these little personalized little packets and they come and you just take one from the little stack and you're good to go. You don't have to open up separate bottles. You don't have to do anything like that. And uh, it's just really cute. Like... I don't know. It just says, hey, Kendra, this was made for you. <laughs> it's so cute. It is really cool how it works. And it gets delivered straight to your front door every single month. So you don't have to go traipsing up and down vitamin aisles to try to figure out what you need. 
And the cool thing is now Care-of offers protein powders available in individual packets for on-the-go and also in bulk-sized tubs so that way you can personalize your fitness goals and dietary preferences. They also have an app so you can track your progress with the Care-of app and earn rewards when you remember to take your vitamins. So for 30% off your first care of order, go to takecareof.com and enter reading women 30, no spaces. So that's for 30% off your first care of order. You go to takecareof.com and enter reading women 30. And of course, all of their information will be linked in our show notes. And thanks so much to care of for sponsoring this episode of reading women. You know, in this conversation of like parenthood, clearly that's a big theme in in the novel as well. And part of this, the story that we haven't quite touched on yet is the you family who are the ones who run Miracle Submarine. And so the line opens actually with Young, who she actually has the first lines in the book. And uh, Young and her daughter moved here from Korea to give her, you know, more opportunities and you know, those kinds of things. So these are kind of like, just for our listeners' sakes, like kind of parallel in my mind, like narratives kind of running through this. It was really interesting to me how as Young was kind of watching the attorney kind of pull apart Elizabeth, who's the mother of the, well, the mother of the, the child who died. The Like the big thing is that she was a bad mom, you know, and that seems to kind of be like the one point that they keep kind of hammering, like, well, would a good mother do this? Would a good mother do this? And it really like strikes young as well. And it really, because she's thinking about the sacrifices that she's made for her daughter as well. So can you talk a little bit about this concept of being a, a bad mother that definitely like shows up in this book that I, I just loved how you colored that in. So yeah, I'll stop talking. But You know, I really have this huge thing about how we as a society expect women to be good mothers with a capital G, capital M. And, you know, I think it's, there's this myth of the good mother and, you know, the perfect mother, the self-sacrificing one who never has a stray thought about, you know, who never has any thoughts other than of pure love and perfect self-satisfaction for their child and their mother and and their role in being a mother. And I just think that we have such unrealistic expectations for mothers. And, and what that does is it makes it impossible for mothers to talk about some of the difficulties, because then you don't want to be that mom who's the bad mom who is complaining. And you don't want to be the bad mom who isn't grateful to have a child and to be a mother and to have that be the center of your life and the most important thing in your life and all of those things. And so to me, it was really important to highlight some of these mothers that are at the extremes of self self sacrifice, and so we're talking about the parents um, in the HBOT who are, you know, twenty four by seven caregivers to their children who are disabled, as well as somebody like Young Yu, who is the Korean immigrant mother who came to this country, you know, not speaking the English language that well. 
and came here with her daughter and basically worked as a slave um, in a dangerous grocery store in Baltimore before they finally moved to the rural, rural Virginia area where Miracle Submarine takes place. And so you're talking about, you know, giving up your normal life for the immigrants. It's, you know, the it, young gave up um, her family and friends and her language in Korea and came over here to a completely foreign land, not not knowing anyone. And then for these other parents um, who are the caregivers, you know, they've given up their sort of normal quote unquote life. And they are now, you know, sort of doing nothing but trying to help their children. And I think that When you look at that situation and then you scrutinize every move as they do in the courtroom scenes and, you know, call out the little tiny acts or thoughts that people might have had, you know, and then trying to paint them as bad mothers. I think that that's something that I see happening all the time in our society. And I wanted to call that out. When you've been talking about the book in other interviews, you've mentioned as well about the nonverbalness of your novel and how that theme um, relates to the characters in Miracle Creek. Um, and a lot of the uh, children who are taken to the HBOT have autism and and how those two things interplay with each other. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So one of the big things I think about the Korean immigrant family, both the father, Pak Yu, and the mother, Young Yu, have issues with not speaking English as well. And, you know, and Pak has this um, chapter where he sort of talks a lot about how when he arrived in America, he realized that he became a different person. Um, in English um, as that a different person than he was in Korea because in Korean he is authoritative and he's eloquent and he's someone worthy of respect whereas when you don't speak the language you become this person who is regarded as not smart as stupid and then when you juxtapose that against his daughter mary who came here earlier than he did and so therefore um speaks english better he feels all this pain and angst feeling like he has been surpassed by his child like his child is no longer the child she's now the grown-up, and he's now the child who who can't speak, um, who needs her help to communicate with the outside world. And um, and I wrote about this because I saw it in my own parents. Um, I immigrated here from Korea when I was 11, and I'm an only child. And um, I definitely saw this dynamic with my parents as well, that at some point I surpassed them in the English language. And it's an awkward thing to happen because all of a sudden, you know, you feel like superior to your parents and it's a really unsettling thing to feel. And especially since knowing the language is something that, you know, from an intellectual perspective, you know why um, people don't speak the language when you first come to the United States. And even after a while, for adults especially, um, you know that it has nothing to do with, you know, you being smart or not. It's just, you know, it's just not your first language. And they're 
very eloquent and fluent in a different language. But even so, I think we have this assumption that when somebody doesn't speak the language, there must be something a little not smart or intelligent about them. And I felt this myself, too, when I first came. So I went from being this kid who in Korea, you know, I was pretty smart. I was like at the top of my class and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I was very, very much of a talker. And then, you know, I came here and I didn't know how to say anything. And I didn't understand anything anyone was saying to me. So I sort of went from being, you know, this pretty smart, eloquent, you know, person to this kid who felt like a deaf, mute person without any thoughts worthy of anyone listening. So, and I could see everybody sort of looking at me like, oh, that poor, poor kid who can't speak. And I just felt so inadequate and so frustrated. And then I think later, um, as an adult, when I was in this environment in the HBOT world, and also my son um, having hearing loss in one ear, he he definitely also had um, speech therapy and things like that. So I encountered a lot of kids with issues with speech and who were nonverbal, as sometimes happens with kids with uh, who are on the autism spectrum. And I just became so aware of this intense feeling that I had of feeling like I was back in that stage when I had first come from Korea to America. And I don't think that I even really realized it until much later, until I started writing essays and stuff about uh, Miracle Creek, why I was so fascinated and drawn to this issue of kids with autism who are nonverbal. And I really think it's because I remember that time and feeling like I, I have thoughts within me. I know I, I, I'm a relatively smart kid. I, I know what I want to say, and yet I can't say them. And the frustration that comes with that. And I know enough kids who are nonverbal to know that they are highly intelligent. They understand what's going on around them, but they just lack the ability to speak. And because of that inability to communicate in the way that, you know, we expect they are regarded as not having thoughts, as not understanding, mm-hmm. you know, and people talk about them behind, not even behind their back, just, they just talk about them as if they don't understand anything. And, um, so that's been something that I've been fascinated by and really drawn to as far as exploring. Well, that section that you're talking about with Park talking about not being able to communicate and then paired with this, you know, these children who can't communicate their needs. Like that pairing was just like hit me like a brick wall. Like it was so moving. And um, it was, I don't know, it's like it, like the light turned on or something like that. And I've thought about it a lot, like since finishing the book about like how that's so true. And I've experienced that in my own life um, with friends of ours, but Yeah, again, just to reiterate what Kendra said, like, we both, like, really loved and appreciated how true and honest the representations were of these kids and their families and the dynamics and how that works out. It's just, like, not just, like, encouraging to see, but, like, just so 
helpful for my own thinking as well. So, yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, no. And, and that, that sort of, I don't want to say it's a parallel because I think that does a disservice to, um, autism because, you know, I mean, for me, you know, I had the comfort of knowing, yeah, eventually I'm going to learn English and I'm going to be okay. Um, so I definitely don't want to say that what I was feeling is anywhere close to what the frustration of a person with autism, but when that realization of why I personally am drawn to autism hit me, it hit me like a brick, brick wall too. Like I, it made me, I just cry. I remember like, just crying and crying and being like, and trying to tell my husband about it. And I couldn't even get the words out because it just, Mm. the realization hit me so hard. Yeah. So I'm really, I'm so glad that, um, we're highlighting it here and talking about it because I think that's, and, and I think everybody experiences that to some degree. Like if you go to a country as a tourist, you know, and you don't speak the language and you're in a village and you, you're like sort of doing the hand gestures and things like that, you know, it makes you feel incompetent. Mm -hmm. And that, so think about that sense of incompetence and if that pervades your life, like what that must do. And so, and then you can begin to like understand, you know, how that impacts just sort of the psyche of, you know, an immigrant and, you know, people with disabilities as well. So... So I hope that, you know, communicates that the, that the, if the book can help to build any sort of empathy for like these people who experiences though, who are experiencing those types of challenges, I, then I will be just, uh, I'll feel so happy about that because that's really, it's not what I set out to do per se, but now that, you know, I'm hearing that from other people, it's making me realize how glad I am that that's happened. So one of the questions we wanted to ask you, um, who were some of your go-to women authors that you might have been reading during while you were writing this book or maybe that you have read recently? So during the writing of this book, probably um, I mentioned already Dennis Lehane's Mystic River was a big one. I also read a lot of novels that feature different voices. So Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad um, was a favorite of mine. Olive Kittredge was another one. Um, I already mentioned Russell Banks' The Sweet Hereafter. And then finally, I'll mention one more, which is just one of my favorite books of all time, which is Tim O'Brien's In the Lake of the Woods, which has just the most unusual, unconventional structure. Those were probably the books that I had right by my side every single time I was writing. And then whenever I would get stuck on something, I would read, I would just pick up one of them and I would read until I found the voice again. Last year, we interviewed your friend, Mira T. Lee. Oh, I love Mira T. Lee so much. Oh my goodness. She's amazing. Her book, Everything yes. Here is Beautiful is amazing. Yes. Oh, so great. And I think maybe she emailed us about you too, now that I'm thinking about it. So <laughs> who are like who are some of the women writers um that you're friends with right now who might have books coming out soon that you'd want to give a shout out to? 
So one book that's coming out next month that I'm so excited about and I'm in the middle of reading right now is Julia Phillips, uh, The Disappearing Earth. Don't know if you've heard about it, but in the beginning of the novel, it's a literary mystery. In the beginning of the novel, um, two girls disappear from Russia, from the uh, Kamchatka peninsula of Russia. I have no idea if I'm saying that correctly. Um, but in any case, and then it's, um, it's almost like linked stories where each chapter explores the story in the aftermath and sort of trying to suss out how they disappeared and why and things like that from all different people's perspectives. Um, and it's just such beautiful prose and amazing writing. So um, I'm really, really excited about that one for sure. I, I have heard of that one. I just pulled it up on my Goodreads. And yes, it is. I remember that cover. Oh, so good. Cool. Yeah, it's a beautiful cover. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Angie, for coming on to the podcast and talking to us about your book. Um, we really enjoyed talking to you and enjoyed reading it as well. Oh, thank you so much. I really, really had fun talking about this. And also, I just really love that we had this sort of intimate, heartfelt exchange. Thank you so much. We'd like to thank Care Of for sponsoring this episode of Reading Woman. We'd also like to thank Angie Kim for talking to us about her novel, Miracle Creek, which is out now from Sarah Crichton Books. You can find Angie on her website, angiekimbooks.com, and on Twitter at Angie Kim Writer and Instagram at Angie Kim Ask. And of course, all of this information will be linked below in our show notes. We'd also like to say a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com and on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at Katie Winchester and me at Autumn Privet. Thank you all so much for listening to Reading Women, and we will talk to you soon.